0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Weber Zahn and Pope answer the call to duty and take off for the Haven warship sale with a Queen's Ransom of Manticoran credits burning a hole in their pockets. The Bane Big Book of Monsters, try saying that 20 times, which I just did, is so good it's scary. Plus part four and the finale of the miniseries adaptation of Eric Flint's Islands, followed by part 28 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We continue our most excellent interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope on A Call to Duty, the first book in a new series in the Honorverse. Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf is with us as well. The series is called Manticore Ascendant. It's set several hundred years before Honor Harrington's time in an era when the Royal Manticore Navy is on the verge of being dismantled but also a time when the Star Kingdom is about to open up to interstellar commerce in a way it never had before. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. And Bane Books Audio Drama presents the fourth installment and the finale of a four-part audio drama miniseries, Eric Flint's Islands, set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake. This is an entirely original adaptation. It's a show, not an audiobook. We have a full cast of professional actors, an all-original musical soundtrack, and cinema-quality sound effects. But first, here's the news. The October Omni trade paperback has arrived at booksellers, and it's a doozy. It's called The Bane Big Book of Monsters. Was that a chill of Frijon that just passed through your readerly soul? Did we just feel your October getting scarier? The Bane Big Book of Monsters is a collection of both legendary stories appearing again, including a great David Drake story, H.P. Lovecraft, Robert Block, Arthur C. Clarke, the list goes on. Plus there are all new stories by the likes of Larry Correa, Sarah A. Hoyt, Hank Davis, and Wen Spencer. We will devote an upcoming interview to talking with several of the authors about this cool collection, so get it, delve into its gargantuan depths, and be prepared for the Bane Free Radio Hour Halloween podcast therewith. Much like The Souls of Men, the book can also be enjoyed as an appetizer or as a main course. The Bain Big Book of Monsters is now at booksellers everywhere. Here is part two of our two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, Thomas Pope, and Tony Weiskopf. We're talking about the book A Call to Duty, which is a first entry in a new series set in David Weber's Honorverse. David Weber is a 28-times New York Times bestseller, and Timothy Zahn is a number one New York Times bestseller for his Star Wars tie-in novels. Thomas Pope is the director of the David Weber Consulting Group, BU nine and Tony Weiskopf is the publisher at Bain Books. We hope you enjoy this finale of the interview. Well, that's one of the, the hallmarks of the book. The politicians and the politics are, are all shades of grey. Um, the bad guys are not all bad. They have a point in some instances. This is where Travis's brother, or half-brother, Winterfell comes in, too. He gives us that viewpoint into that process.
2: And really, it boils down in many ways to your the basic assumption. If the Star Kingdom is perfectly safe, we don't even need, need a Navy of this size. If there are actually threats out there we may have to deal with, yes, we do. And you can't really argue basic assumptions.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that I think that one of the things that um, the, okay, the difference between the political struggle at this point in the Star Kingdom and the political struggle at Honor Harrington's time, it, at Honor's time, there's good and bad people on both sides of of the question, but it's kind of like it's a binary solution. Either we get ourselves together to fight the peeps who are going to come and conquer us or we get conquered. Okay, In Travis's time, it's not a binary solution. And the mere fact that somebody is is a detestable human being doesn't necessarily mean that he's wrong. And so some of the politicians who clearly are grinding their own axes, building their own empires at the expense of the Navy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have a point about the, the money being spent on maintaining a Navy they haven't needed in, what, it's been 50 years since the Brotherhood? Is that believe, right, Jeff? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think of this sort of as um the U.S. between the First World War and the Second World War at worst, and probably more like the U.S. between the American Civil War and the Spanish-American War. I mean, it's just, there's... We don't need it. So why should we have it? And and it and like, like Tim says, it's hard to argue with that assumption in a lot of respects. Now we know, because it's a David <laughs> Weber universe novel, that you need a nickname. Okay. My <laughs> God. But the people in the books don't know that. Well <laughs> I I Tony Tony, the reason that there is that scene in the tactical simulator in the beginning of Field of Dishonor where I refight the Battle of Hancock is because Tony looked at the original, Tony with an eye, looked at the original rough draft and said, David, there are no exploding starships in it. How will they know it's yours? <laughs> <laughs> so I went back and blew up the same starships over again, so everybody would out with mine. I think that's a legitimate editorial comment. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think mean, it was, but that's why that was in there.
2: <laughs> okay, so one blow, at least one destroyed starship per book. Okay, I'll make another.
3: Note. <laughs> well, I'd say we're, we're we're covered in the first one. We're covered in the first yeah. one. I was a, you know, you course guys course. were, you guys were a little bit of pikery here when you, you know, you you you, you resolved the, the the main conflict the way you did, but. That's okay, because it was done very well. But, yeah, we didn't have exploding starships there.
2: You're the one who told me that there was no military action until the Battle
3: of (laughs) Abacor, and we were one book off of that. (laughs) What else were we supposed to do? Well, you did it very well. (laughs) Okay. but we will we will have exploding starships i promise.
1: Uh, well speaking we have, of the the peeps what is haven like now and why do they call this conference?
4: Well haven at this point is this is Haven's heyday. This is this is the point where haven is the bright shining beacon of
3: the sector. Um uh, there a this is a haven, this, wonderful. This is uh, haven as this is haven as Athens. Really yes, for this whole yes. sector. Yeah.
4: So, so they are—they are the ones that people look to when you when you want to see it, what's a successful colony. You look to Haven because they've, you know, they they've colonized with a um, um, become, the expedition was well funded, it was well well run, well maintained. They've already started to send out some daughter colonies. They have a um, a, a working relationship with a lot of the close uh, star systems, um, and they really see themselves in this role as um, not overseer and not even necessarily protector but just sort of shepherd of this area and when they see that there are issues with the piracy issues that are starting up and they decided that they needed to, to start doing something about this and they're also looking to their economy they have they're one of the few areas in outside of the solarian league right now that has their own shipbuilding and they're looking to expand their economy so they're looking to be become the supplier's um, so people aren't going back to
3: the league to get their ships. Instead, you can go to Haven. To what, get your ships? What, one of one of the points for me, it's it's not something that needs to be brought centrally into the, the 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 plots of the books, but it's part of the the DNA of the books. This is the era in which Haven wins the goodwill. That keeps people from seeing the People's Republic as a threat for as long as they fail to see it. Because this is the haven that everybody knows, in quotes, that, that, and they built this, this reservoir of goodwill, totally earned and deserved goodwill that the legislaturalists later use to help cloak their actual motives when they start building up their fleet and they're saying, well, it's to protect the sector and so forth. It resonates with traditional Havenite policy. And that's, to me, part of the function of these books is to demonstrate that process so that people stop saying, well, everybody in Honor Harrington's time must have been absolute idiots not to see this coming. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, they are. They're distant from Manticore, but they are friends, associates, and allies as much as they can be at this point.
3: Yes, and major. And that target. process, that, and that yeah, that process will strengthen once the uh, wormhole junction is discovered, because all of a sudden the journey between the core worlds of the Solarian League and this sort of Athenian uh, Republic of Haven will become much shorter. And that too plays into the relationship between Manticore and Haven, and for that matter, Basilisk and Haven. Uh, not Basilisk, Beowulf and, and Haven. Later in the history of the Honorverse, when uh, in the period between this and Honor Harrington's day,
1: is the is the sort of central salient of the series going to be that this is when the wormhole was discovered? This was when it was starting to develop.
3: Well, there's a reason it's called Manticore Ascendant for the series.
1: Yes, that occurred.
3: <laughs> so we, we start um, in the first book with
2: hints that it exists, and we're going to start realizing it's there by the right. second book, by the third and, and fourth and fifth. Are you taking notes, Tony? Uh, <laughs> 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 we are going to be following some of the political and uh military consequences of having this this thing suddenly here i think david's uh i, I like david's um uh, analogy that we start out with iceland and then iceland will become will, will suddenly be at the confluence of the suez and panama canal
3: if if iceland became the british empire in 1900
2: yeah hmm. Yeah. And, and all the consequences and the the fallout, international repercussion, repercussions, uh, local politics, uh, and of course, exploding starships.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of uh, the possibility of exploding starships, and since today is Talk Like a Pirate Day, um, can you tell us a little bit about the piracy that's that's <laughs> growing and this uh, this wonderful uh, pirate. Uh, Gazarwan, who's a character in the book. He just—he's uh, very smart. He's—he's he's not a dumb pirate,
3: <laughs> but, but he's—he's not—he's not a nice man. <laughs> no. Pilot. I, 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 I. Well, um, you know, it's like our, our maybe. Um, he has a bold plan.
2: <laughs> And he's yeah. going to try to carry it
3: out
1: what have they been doing up to the point that the book begins
3: you mean, you, mean, you mean what have the what have the pirates been up to
1: yeah why are they a growing threat that we don't know about
3: opportunities are growing as interstellar trade increases and outside the solarian league which is much smaller at 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 this time um and is is really in its in its youth, in a lot of ways at this point, there's nothing to stop people who want to do bad things for fun and profit from doing them. Um, and th- you can think of this as uh, as a, uh, a lawless frontier where filibustering expeditions uh, can be done, or you can think of it as All right. Maybe a better maybe a better analogy would be: this is sort of like the Vikings raiding Europe. In in a sense, the military wherewithal to stop them exists only in a few nodal locations. And they can make deals with as, as as uh Tim mentioned, with third world dictators for all intents and purposes. So they can make sweetheart deals there. They can you know, now it should also be mentioned that there are perfectly honorable mercenaries wandering around the galaxy at this point. These guys are kind of the um they're the mercenaries you would hire when you want a democratic regime toppled. Because <laughs> they're smart. They're competent, and they have exactly zero in the way of scruples. Okay, <laughs> is, or that, is In that some fair? cases, when you want a pirate base, when
4: you want to hit a pirate base, you might call some mercenaries to take out some pirates for you.
3: Yes, yes, but that would be like you would call the more honorable mercenaries. Uh, the, you would yes, say yes, these course. are bad guys over here. cup swat them. Uh, then you know, of yes. course now there's there's a little there's a little uh, bit of the. Um, of the sort of the, the renaissance italy attitude towards mercenaries at this point in the honorverse you can't you know these colonies can't afford to maintain navies big enough to stop a serious attack so what you do is you hire somebody to handle the heavy lifting for you unless you happen to be fortunate enough to be manticore with enough money banked back on on uh, on old earth that you can buy a navy in a box of your own. And that's really kind of where Manticore is falling between stools right now. Unlike Haven, they're not big enough to build a naval force of their own, big enough to give somebody like these, this bunch of guys pause. But they have their own fleet instead of having to hire somebody else to come in and see to their security. Does
2: that yeah, guy, You've got the that make nasty sense, guys? pirate types, and you've got the uh, hireable security group, uh, you know, a.k.a. the Seven Samurai types.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yes. Or, Gust- or Gustav Andermann, during his career, right. would fall into the, these are mercenaries you can trust. They'll do what they said they'll do. They won't say, well, now that we're here, we might as well pillage you instead of letting somebody else do it. <laughs> um you know I mean um, and and um, yeah, I think probably the the contrast between Gustav and these guys is is a good one that that kind of encapsulates the spectrum of honorable and dishonorable mercenaries. Hmm.
1: so what's uh what's next have you Have you guys been working on the the next book? Is it finished um, where is Where are we going from here?
3: Exploding
1: my
3: Starships. Part, <laughs> my part finished this morning.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I need to do the editing of this last part, then send it to Tom and David, who will tell me what I did wrong and how to fix it. And while I do that, I will go back and fix all the stuff I got wrong in the first two sections. But yeah, we're on the, uh, we're getting close to the home stretch here.
3: But Let me clarify one thing here. The things, the things that Tim got wrong in the first part were virtually all hardware issues or where we ran into something that was hardwired into the historical background that he didn't know about that Tom and I know about.
2: Well we we tweaked a couple of scenes too, but all of them are fixable, which is the important thing.
3: No I think I need to go write some more contracts. (laughs) (laughs) When 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 we started looking at this I really was thinking in terms of a trilogy. Now, by the same token, I was thinking the original Arniverse, I was projecting about eight books. So I was <laughs> not real surprised when it when it growed. And I don't think Tony was either. What I was surprised about was the the potential for growth that we discovered uh as we started working on this uh and when i say the potential for growth i mean not simply the potential for travis's growth but the potential for um opening the window into this period of the of the star kingdom's history really really wide i'm really excited about the possibilities
2: Yeah, while well, this has begun as and will continue to be travis's story we have now mm-hmm. spun off, by the end of the second book, we've got half a dozen point of view characters, all of whom will have directions of their own.
4: During yes. whom
2: we can explore Manticore, Haven, Andermann, possibly Valerian. League. We will we, we'll be going off, you know, he, he jumped on his horse and rode off madly in all directions.
3: <laughs> it's, 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 uh, It's doing what good collaborations do. It is drawing on the strengths that all three of us bring to the process. And there's, I hate this word because it's overused so much, but there's a synergy involved here in which we start striking ideas off of each other. And one of us will throw a concept out and the other two will say, ooh, and start working with it to fit it into the the mosaic it's it is from from my perspective this has been one of the most enjoyable collaborations i've done and i've really enjoyed quite a few of the collaborations i've done but this one has been possibly because it's in the honorverse and the honorverse is my special baby kind of thing it's especially satisfying to me to see it going as well as it's going
1: you guys seem to be friends uh as well. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh it seems like there that synergy is um is is deeper than necessarily just a professional relationship.
4: Oh yeah. I think
2: we yeah. understand and work yeah. well with each other. We know each other's strengths and weaknesses.
4: Uh uh
2: Tom's basic weakness is not liking some of the stuff I do because
4: physics. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: don't remember how many emails I've written back to him that start with "Curse you and your stupid laws of physics and your ridiculously <laughs> over, over-engineered warship."
4: Oh yes, we had but many be conversations be honest, about how one blows up the ship.
2: David throws the, the ideas that I can just pick and choose. I, I am mean, he, he will, uh, as I discovered in the first uh, uh, novel, novellas I did in for his anthology. He will come up with a, a, a note, an email that says, uh, okay, this thing you just suggested doesn't work. However, this might work instead. Oh, wait a minute. This might work instead. Oh, and here's this. And by the time that five-page email is done, there are four different options you can choose for how to fix this problem and make it work. And I just get to choose my favorite. So, um, yeah, well, it, it is. It's a wonderful, it has been a wonderful collaboration, which is the only reason I'm talking about 20 books. Uh, <laughs> mark that number, Tony? 20?
3: 20! 20! We can do it in three book <laughs> chunks if you prefer. I, I, I think that, I think that one of the things that is, uh, that works very well here is this is not one of the collaborative relationships where ego starts driving what we how we relate to one another okay there's there's to me it's all collaborations are different and everybody i've collaborated with it's been in a different way this one is it's a heck of a lot more of uh an equal partnership equal ownership of the of the dna of the of of the books i mean you know there's no question that it's in my honor verse that i created the basic framework but that's like saying okay i put up the studs in the house uh and and you know I, and somebody else is doing the interior <laughs> you know what i'm saying Um, And it's just really, really been fun. And it's fun to me because I'm getting to watch the Honorverse go in directions that I'm not in control of to the extent that I am in every detail that happens in an Honor Harrington book. And so I get to come along for the ride to that extent. And that's been just just cool. Although both Tim and Tom have grown to dread the moments when we're having conferences, and David suddenly goes, ooh, shiny, in the middle of what we're talking
2: about. (laughs) I think the bottom line is, at least for me, and I'm sure it's the same with Tom and David, what we are driven by is to create the best story we can. No ego, no whose rights this is, best story. And when you're starting at that premise, you're going to work well together.
3: I yeah, think that's I absolutely true absolutely true. the the tom is is one person who's not on the cover of this book, and that's purely because we were afraid that with three titles people would think it with three authors, people would think it was another anthology um which it's not uh but he is he is uh central to our maintaining the continuity and the flow, and he is definitely our tech guy, he's the guy who does the line art and actually builds the ships. So that when uh, Tim is talking about where somebody has to go aboard the ship, okay, Tom has given him a diagram of the ship so that he knows where so-and-so has to go. And he always goes by the same route to the same place because the ship doesn't change. This <laughs> isn't Darkover, okay? <laughs> uh-huh. This is, this is there's there's a a a a a continuity to it, and Tom keeps us grounded that way. And I think that's a huge, huge service that he's performing for us.
2: David's put up the studs and and you know drawing the plans. Tom is in charge of all of the supporting walls.
3: Tom, yeah. Tom Tom is in charge of all the wiring and plumbing. I think, think I it, you think I'm choosing the paint and putting up the pictures.
1: Okay.
4: Well, I um, I, I said once I, I think that I, I don't I haven't I didn't write a single word in this book, but I've probably written 60,000 words about this book to Tim and to David, uh, and and drawn many 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 diagrams and pictures.
1: The book is a call to duty by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. It's now at Booksellers Everywhere. David, Timothy, and Tom, thank you so much. And Tony, thank you so much for being with us. Now here is part four and the finale of the four-part mini-series Presentation of Islands.
0: Bain Audio Drama from Bain Books. The heart of science fiction and fantasy. Bain Audio Drama presents Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint, set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake.
5: I am Luke of Elephonesis the aide-de-camp and chief manservant to Calipodius Serenites, a captain in the Roman army of General Belisarius and a son of the wealthy Serenites clan of Constantinople. When he departed Constantinople for the front, Calipodius left behind a new wife. They had wed in an arranged marriage to unite two aristocratic families, one ancient and poor, the other newly risen and filthy rich. Callipodius and Anna were seventeen. They did not care for one another at all. Now, a year had passed and neither was the boy or girl they had been. Callipodius was blinded by a mortar shell and had become famous for his written dispatches on the war in India. And Anna? Anna was making her way through that war zone to reach her husband on the front leaving clean hospitals and the saved lives of soldiers in her wake. Both had departed Constantinople as children. Now they would meet, if they ever would, as a man and a woman.
6: Ah. Uh,
7: uh, Take my hand, girl. Uh, uh,
6: <sighs> Thank you, Ellis.
7: How was it up there, girl? Did you see the sights?
6: You may not believe me, but it was marvelous. I was scared to death, and it was goddamned marvelous. And
7: she's even starting to swear like a soldier. Your uniform dress has powder burns all over it.
6: Oh, so it does.
7: Good thing you decided on the maroon for us, or they would show much worse.
6: Yes, and it also hides bloodstains. That was Saints the main idea. us. So what is the butcher's bill, Illus? How many did we lose?
7: Not many. Uh, Two men dead. Ketomenes got cut pretty bad by a grenade fragment. There's also... And
6: the orphans? What about them? I brought them into this. I told them I would protect them. Yes.
7: We sent them below deck, of course. But that hard blooded girl, Sunila, the leader of them, she insisted on worming her way out. She wanted to see. Katomenes, well, you know she was special to him. He was running to get her. That's how he got hit. That same grenade, it, it was quick at least. Oh, no. She was dead oh, in God. an instant.
6: What have I done?
7: It's no one's fault. The girl would probably have died on the streets of Barbaricum, or something worse might have befallen her.
6: Yes, it is my fault, Illis. I made her think she was finally safe, finally had a home. (sighs) I failed her, Illis.
7: The shrapnel is still in my brother, girl. I need you. I need you to ride that damn surgeon. Make him boil his instruments. And in the bandages, we'll need tending the proper way. He's a bit of an ass, but he's still my brother, and I would not like to lose him.
6: Something to do. Yes. All right, Illus. Let's go and pay a visit to that damned surgeon.
8: It's from Amudaria, sir.
9: All right, read it, Luke. It's it's from her, sir. From her? Your wife, sir. I'll be damned. Read it aloud, man. Better yet, hand it to me and I'll read it. (laughs) Here you go, General. All fine except Katamani's injured and little Sunila dead. Stop. Sunila, only 12 years old, feel horrible about it. Mention her in dispatches, please. Also mention Puckle Gunner Leo Stavros, splendid man. Also instruct General Belisari as make more puckle guns, splendid things. Damned if she isn't right again. Well, it goes on. <laughs> oh, this is good. <laughs> operator says message too long. Operator refuses to give his name. Mention nameless operator in dispatches. Stupid, asinine, worthless fellow. <laughs> Why do I think someone in that telegraph station has a sword at his throat? Her bodyguards are sorry, and oh, there's more. There's more. Victrix's captain says we'll arrive soon, we'll need new clothes. And finally, she says, I'm eager to see you again, my husband.
1: There's no reception for the lady. Too bad. We do this quickly these days. There are Malwa spies in the reeds on the opposite bank. They messaged the Malwa lines to fire rockets.
8: Here comes the barrage!
1: That's got to come from miles away. Not very accurate. Why don't they just fire them from over there in the reeds? (laughs) Oh, they did at first. But that was just pure suicide. Even those fanatical Malwa gave it up after a while. I'd
7: feel better if you moved to the bow, girl. That'll reach the ship bunker first.
6: Yes, I suppose.
7: Keep moving, girl. Yes, the rockets are completely inaccurate. But they don't always miss, and any rocket that big is going to have a monster of a warhead.
6: I take your point, Illus.
1: All right. We're passing into the bunker now. All hands, stand by. Get those gunnel buoys out. her tight, men. That's the way.
6: Is it usually so dark?
7: I don't know. I'm no sailor.
1: Lower gangway!
6: Well... Here we are.
1: It's now safe to go ashore, Lady Serenites. Be careful on the gangway.
6: Alright. Thank you, Captain.
7: Watch your step go.
6: Yes, yes, I will. But why does it have to be so
8: dark? Strike the lights! Attention! Flourish! Good God, I forgot how loud
7: those cornissons are.
6: Illus, do they always bang their sword hills on their shields like that?
5: No, girl, they almost never do.
6: Attention
9: crew! General, coming aboard! Is that... It
7: is, girl.
9: Lady Serenites, we're glad you've made it.
6: General Belisarius, Lady Macramboletisa wrote that your smile was crooked. Yes? I see it wasn't poetic license.
9: (laughs) Welcome to the Iron Triangle. Your husband would be here, but there is a small dust-up going on to the south, and he is at his post in the telegraph office. Would you like me to take you there?
6: Yes. Please take me to him, General.
10: Place those reports from the right in progressive order from center to flank. Yes, sir. And mark them off on the terrain map. The general will want to see that third one, I believe. Everything in Masala will depend on who takes and holds the high ground. We'll do, Captain. Luke, guide
9: the captain over here, will you? Yes, General.
10: Captain them on your left. Thank you. W- where are we going? The general has brought a visitor, sir. A visitor?
9: Oh. Lady Serenites. Your husband.
0: Oh. Oh
10: luke keeps it clean but i'm afraid it's just a big pit in the ground when all is said and done a pit covered with logs and soil
6: it's fine
10: anna i know how i look i've had it described to me you may have only expected empty eye sockets but mortars don't obey the laws of poetry and pierce the eyes like needles. That one took half my face with it. I realize I'm hideously ugly now.
6: It's fine. Not a problem. I've seen far worse.
5: We've come with the baggage.
9: Where shall we put it, sir?
10: Luke will show you.
9: Very good, sir.
6: Katamines, you're on your feet again.
9: Thanks to you, your ladyship. It seems to grow more heavy the more one carries it about.
5: Over here will do.
9: There's more. Quite a lot, actually. Maybe you could lend us a hand, Sergeant?
5: I'd be happy to.
9: It isn't far. We'll be
1: back soon.
6: All right.
10: Take your time. You let those Asarians address you quite boldly.
6: Illis saved my life multiple times, as did his brother and Abdul. I believe he can address me as he wishes. (laughs) At least he didn't call me girl in front of you. Is he accustomed to? Oh, yes. You and he, you aren't... Illis has behaved like I wish my older brother had when I was growing up. He's not my type, Calipodius.
10: I'm afraid I don't know your type in a man. I know very little about you. I'm sorry if I... Well, I'm sorry. I am too. Anna. I don't understand why you came.
6: It doesn't matter. I'm here now. You know, I've never actually seen you smiling till now. Hold me, Calipodius.
10: God in heaven, Anna! How can you stand wearing something as stifling in this climate? You'll (laughs) drown in sweat.
6: So I have often thought.
10: We have to get you a sari, first thing. I can't have my wife dying on me of heat prostration. I have longed
6: to wear one every time I have seen an Indian woman.
10: If you wear a sari, it will become the new style of the Empire, I have no doubt. Especially if I mention it in a dispatch.
6: You wouldn't dare.
10: Just watch me. will just be going for the night, sir. Thank you, Luke. I couldn't get by without him. In his way, much like your Illis, he saved me, too. I see that. So how's the new sari?
6: I feel like I can breathe for the first time in months. But what will the soldiers think when they see me going about with the bare midriff?
10: You're beautiful. I want everyone to know that. Did you think I'd forget?
6: Come. Lie beside me.
10: I should not have said that. To be honest, I can hardly remember what you look like.
6: I can hardly remember myself. Kiss me. I warn you, we are not in Constantinople anymore. We won't be for a long time, if ever. So if I catch you with the courtesan, I'll boil you alive.
10: The thought never crossed my mind.
6: I'm sure it has.
10: Well... It won't anymore. Good. I wish I could see you.
6: It doesn't matter. Feel.
0: This has been part four and the conclusion of Eric Flint's Islands based on the novella by Eric Flint set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake Starring Tracy Coppedge as Anna and Paul Kilpatrick as Calipodius Featuring Lex Wilson as Illis, Jeff Aguiar as Belisarius Izzy Berger as Sister Catherine and Rika Daniel as Irina of Persia with Carter, Paris Battle, Samuel Montgomery Blinn, Gray Reinhardt, P.J. Mask, and Koki Daniel. Sound engineers, Barry Jacob and Craig Brandwine. Music by Maddie Karras and Sherry Leone. Adaptation and script by Tony Daniel. Directed by Jerome Davis. Bain Books publisher Tony Weiskopf. This audio drama is copyright 2014 by Bain Books. Bain Audio Drama from Bain Books The heart of science fiction and fantasy For more Bain Audio Drama and great Bain Books, visit Bain.com We hope you have enjoyed this production.
1: Here is part 28 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic is read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. By the way, there's a whole slew of new bane audiobooks that have gone up recently at Audible, so check it out. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation, more, are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grim Noir Knights. If the Grim Noir are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak. And the apocalyptic finale of humanity may be about to begin... Here's Bronson Pinchot with part 28 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Career's Hard Magic.
8: Sullivan was impressed, and he didn't impress easily. The mansion was epic, probably the single biggest house he'd ever seen, excluding pictures of palaces and castles from books. He actually recognized the European architectural styles, but since he'd only read the words and had never heard them pronounced, he didn't even bother trying to say them out loud. He whistled. Nice digs you boys got here. It belongs to one of our operatives. His family burns money during the winter to keep warm. You might remember him. You shot him in the knee, Heinrich said. Well, I broke your jaw, and we're best buddies now, Sullivan responded. How many of you Grim Noir are there, anyway? Not near enough, Garrett said. That's not my place to say. You've not taken the oath, so there's only so much I can tell you. That's between you and the General. Sullivan could respect keeping mum for security's sake. He had no doubt that anyone who showed up on the chairman's doorstep with a roster of Grim Noir would be rolling in the green. Garrett sounded the Ford's squeaky air horn as they pulled up to the front porch. From the funny markings he'd seen on the way in, he figured that the people inside already knew they were coming. He unfolded himself from the car. A fountain bubbled nearby. It was a giant goldfish spitting water straight into the air at a golden UBF-style passenger blimp. The illusion created was that the water spout was holding up the dirigible, but Sullivan found the whole thing gaudy. Heinrich began to unload the luggage from the trunk. Sullivan had no bags at all, just the clothes on his back. He didn't need much, though he did miss his Lewis gun. It had sentimental value. A group of people came out onto the front porch. An absolutely gorgeous blonde in a white bathing suit came running off the porch. He recognized her as the healer from the stolen blimp. Dan Garrett broke into a huge grin, opened his arms, and the blonde jumped on him, showering the pudgy little man with kisses, He looked over at Heinrich. The German just shrugged. Go, Dan, Sullivan thought. I'm so glad you're home, she said, squeezing Dan tight. It's good to be back, Dan answered as she broke free. He had to adjust his glasses. Jake Sullivan, this is my fiancé. The blonde turned to him. Sullivan tried not to stare impolitely, but he hadn't seen a woman that attractive in a bathing suit, even a very modest one, for a long time, as in ever. Jane, she said, holding out one hand. Her nails were painted bright red. What have you done to yourself this time? Every time I've seen you, you have more holes in you. Hang on. Sullivan's hand suddenly felt very warm. The heat rolled across his body and seemed to collect in his injuries his lungs filled with fire, and he jerked his hand away. "'What are you doing?' Jane looked offended. "'Well, I was trying to help you, but I suppose I should save what power I've got left for today in case the general has any more attacks. I'll fix you right up tomorrow.' She studied his chest. "'And stop smoking or you'll develop miserable emphysema in three years and be dead in six. The heat seemed to dissipate except in the spots where he'd recently been hurt. Those bits were so hot that he started sweating profusely. Well, thanks. He'd never actually met a real live healer before. But if I schedule a regular checkup with you, can I keep smoking? Jane just sniffed indignantly. Two men came off the porch, shaking hands with Dan and Heinrich. The first was a squat but powerfully built man, Sullivan recognized the beard from the salt circle on the train. The second was tall, extremely thin, and completely bald. He would have made a convincing undertaker. He looked familiar, and Sullivan could almost swear that he'd seen his picture in a book. John Moses Browning? he asked. Indeed. Hello, Mr. Sullivan. The tall man came over and shook his hand. His grip was firm and calloused but you're dead. Greatly exaggerated, he said with a smile. Sullivan was not an emotional man, but he couldn't help himself. Sir, I just have to tell you that the M1911 is the finest fighting handgun in the history of the world. It's an honor. I killed a mess of Germans with one of those. It was very dear to me. Thank you, sir. Browning looked a little embarrassed. Hmm, I'll have to show you my workshop then. I have some new prototypes that I think you would like. The short man came over with a pronounced limp. When they shook hands, it was obvious that he was trying to put some extra squeeze in there. Lance Talon, good to meet you, Sullivan. Sullivan squeezed back. Both of them were too strong to hurt the other. Finally, Lance grinned at him and let go. Welcome to the grim noir. The general's looking forward to seeing you. Wait, Talon, the famous hunter? I read your book about Africa. Sullivan didn't admit it, but he thought the whole thing had been fabricated. Lance Talon just sounded like too much of a radio serial hero's name to actually be a real person. Glad somebody read it. Lance turned back toward the porch as the doors opened. And here are the others that are staying with us. I believe you know Delilah. She was standing there in the doorway, watching him carefully, wearing a short gray dress with her hands resting on her hips. She was just as beautiful as the day they'd met, as pretty as the night he'd tried to arrest her. He lowered his eyes, uncomfortable. When he looked up, she was still smirking at him, and he had no idea what to say. Faye was walking through the house with Delilah, the others had been alerted to something by their rings and had gathered at the front. Apparently somebody Fay didn't know was arriving. She was excited to meet these new grim Noirs, as everyone else she had met had been very nice. Delilah had been talking about fighting, and Fay had only been half paying attention. She knew that she should be trying to learn more, because Delilah was like an encyclopedia of ways to hurt people, but she'd learned so much over the last few days that she felt like her brain was full, She was exhausted and just wanted to take a nap. It was true what they said. A healer could fix you, but she still felt the pain for a while after, and every single part of her body hurt from the training. So she was distracted when Delilah opened the front door. She was saying something about how she was nervous because one of these new arrivals and her used to be real close, but Faye was too tired to care. When she looked past Delilah's shoulder, the world came to a screeching halt. He was there, the thing from her nightmares. Fay froze, suddenly choking on her own terror. His face was down, covered by a black fedora, but she recognized him anyway, the way he stood, the way he moved. He was huge, his chest wide as two men, arms like tree trunks. And when he looked up toward Delilah, she saw the square profile of the left side of his face. It was him. The right side of his face would be a hideous scar and one gleaming white eyeball and Mr. Browning and Lance were standing right next to him unaware of the evil they'd invited into their house and she just knew that when that bad eye came around he was going to kill all her new friends just like he'd killed her grandpa. Maddie. She began to shake uncontrollably. Delilah said something to him and he actually smiled friendly as could be. His voice was exactly the same deep and dark as a well and he even used the exact same slow words as when she'd first met him when she'd been staring down the barrel of the gun that had killed grandpa. Hey girl no reason for any more killing today I'm looking for something that's all he'd said. Face screamed and the paralysis was gone. I have to save them. She forced herself to move, reaching into her pocket and grasping the little 32 as she focused, sending her thoughts ahead, discovering that the space right behind Maddie was empty and she traveled. Sullivan had tried to think about what he would say to Delilah on the ride here, but he couldn't think of anything. Words had always failed him when he needed them most. He knew that he needed to apologize, to try to explain, to hope that maybe it could be like it was once before. Delilah finally spoke first. Hey, big boy. It was exactly how she had woken him every morning in New Orleans. Hey, girl. He smiled. Maybe the two of us will be all right. Then a terrible pain pierced his back. He stumbled, confused. The others looked past him in shock. He reached up trying to feel what had struck him and something felt like it was stuck, burning between his shoulder blades. His hand came back covered in blood. A terrible buzzing filled his ears. Delilah leapt off the steps screaming something that he couldn't understand as he fell forward on the soft grass. Fay jabbed her little gun forward, jerking the heavy trigger. She aimed right for where his heart should be. There was a pop and a puff of smoke. She kept shooting, pulling the trigger as Maddie lurched, not even hearing the noise anymore. The others were shouting. Delilah charged off the porch, obviously burning at full power. She'd recognize Maddie too. She'd help. But instead of tearing Maddie's head off, Delilah caught him as he fell, lowering the giant to the ground. His head rolled around. His other eye was brown, not white. His hat fell off. There was no scar, and she looked up, confused, to see a young man with a blonde goatee raise a skinny black pistol toward her. She started to speak to explain that something was horribly wrong, but the gun barked, and he shot her squarely in the chest.
1: That was part 28 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Jutkowitz and a private network of intergalactic wormholes leading to cool nebulas, black hole event horizons, and whatnot, plus the thanks and gratitude of happy, happy readers everywhere to David Weber, Timothy Zahn, Thomas Pope, and Tony Weiskopf. Thanks to the cast and crew of Islands as well. We hope you have enjoyed this audio drama series. If you'd like it complete and uninterrupted, we will have the complete version for sale at a low, low price at the Bain eBooks website very soon, so watch for it there. And we hope to present another audio drama based on a great Bain author's work soon on the podcast. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.